You are listening to the Just Powers podcast, a series devoted to supporting and disseminating the work of researchers, activists, artists, and theorists that provide conceptual tools for imagining feminist and decolonial energy transition for more livable futures for all. Series two of the Just Powers podcast was recorded at Village Sound Studio in Halifax, Nova Scotia, located on traditional Mi'kmaq territory, and was made possible by support from Future Energy Systems Canada First Research Excellence Fund, Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada funding, and the Cool Institute of Advanced Study. Today we will be reading Materializing Climate Change, Image of Exposure, States of Exception, by Dr. Nicole Shukin. This text is included in the collection Material Cultures in Canada, edited by Thomas Allen and Jennifer Blair, and published by Wilfrid Laurier University Press in 2015. Material Cultures in Canada presents the vibrant and diverse field of material culture studies in Canadian literary, artistic, and political contexts today. This collection features 16 essays by leading scholars in Canada, each of whom examines a different object of study, including the beaver, geraniums, comics, water, a musical playlist, and the human body. In Dr. Shukin's contribution, she draws attention to two cultural instruments designed to produce moving material images of a historical crisis that is globally diffuse and staggering in the sheer complexity of its ramifying effects, aka climate change. Dr. Nicole Shukin is an associate professor in the Department of English at the University of Victoria and member of the Interdisciplinary Graduate Program in Cultural, Social and Political Thought. She specializes in Canadian literature, cultural studies, with a focus on theories of biopower, animal studies and the politics of nature, and post-structuralist, post-Marxist, and post-humanist theory. The full book, Material Cultures in Canada, is available as a paperback or e-publication through Wilfrid Laurier University Press. Introduction In The Material Unconscious, American Amusement, Stephen Crane and the Economics of Play from 1996, Bill Brown seizes upon the seemingly superfluous mention of a barometer in Flaubert's description of Madame Aubain's parlor in his short story, Un Coeur Simple. More than a mimetic detail whose inclusion generates a textual reality effect for readers, Flaubert's mention of an instrument used to measure atmospheric pressure and to forecast weather becomes... Brown, one site where a material history of things pokes through the surface of the literary text like the tip of an otherwise submerged iceberg. In what follows, I draw attention to two very different barometers, if I can call them that, two cultural instruments designed not so much to generate a barometrics of current atmospheric pressures as to produce moving material images of a historical crisis that is globally diffuse and staggering in the sheer complexity of its ramifying effects, climate change. The first so-called barometer consists of a series of photographic quote-unquote ice slides produced in 2005 by Heather Aykroyd and Dan Harvey, British artists who generated the slides on a Cape Farewell expedition to the Arctic. The Cape Farewell project, founded in 2003 by British artist educator David Buckland, has launched a string of Arctic expeditions with the aim of directly exposing its mixed crews of artists and scientists to the impacts of climate change upon polar environments. The second barometer is a documentary film co-produced in 2010 by Zacharias Kunick and Ian Morrow, 
Kaparingajuk, Inuit Knowledge and Climate Change. Kaparingajuk is an Inuktitut language film that relays the observations of Inuit elders and quote-unquote weathermen who notice material signs of climate change in the ice, wind, snow, and animals of the north. Both quote-unquote ice slides and Kaparingajuk represent unique collaborations between art and science. The Cape Farewell Project intentionally invites both scientists and artists to join its series of Arctic expeditions in order to spark exchange between these two forms of knowledge. Kaparangajuk brings Kunuk's creative practice as an Inuk filmmaker best known for his 2001 feature film Atarjuat, The Fast Runner, together with Moro's scientific training. In the age of the Anthropocene, the current era in which, as the post-colonial historian Deepesh Chakrabarti argues, quote, humans have become geological agents, end quote, and a veritable force of nature on a planetary scale, it's not just old lines between art and science that become irrelevant. An, quote, age-old humanist distinction between natural history and human history, end quote, has itself irrevocably collapsed. I call these photographic and filmic productions cultural barometers, even though it is a world historical climate condition, rather than fluctuations in the weather, that they seek to materialize. The distinction between weather and climate is drawn along temporal lines by meteorologists as well as by authoritative agencies like NASA. According to NASA, quote, the difference between weather and climate is a measure of time. Weather is what conditions of an atmosphere are over a short period of time, and climate is how the atmosphere behaves over relatively long periods of time, end quote. The temporal distinction between weather and climate will take on an enlarged significance as I comparatively assess the cultural interventions posed by these two so-called barometers. For in crystallizing climate change as a crisis event within the short time frame of an Arctic excursion, the ice slides of Ackroyd and Harvey inadvertently bring something else into view as well, a state of exception excited by a sense of ecological emergency, one that justifies dramatic efforts to avert a global catastrophe. By contrast, Kaparingajak's engagement with the crisis of climate change complicates the Western cultural and political habit of pronouncing states of emergency as exceptional time-spaces in which a strong state or individual exercises license to suspend the rule of ordinary life. The association of the state of exception with a European model of sovereign power traces back to the German political theorist Karl Schmitt's theory of the state and his renowned assertion, quote, Sovereign is he who decides on the exception, unquote. Schmitt's statement has catalyzed numerous conceptualizations of the state of exception, including Walter Benjamin's counter that, quote, the tradition of the oppressed teaches us that the state of emergency in which we live is not the exception, but the rule, unquote. As well as numerous reflections by contemporary theorists such as Giorgio Agamben and Judith Butler, the state of exception is usually understood in relation to the state's political or juridical power to suspend the law, and relatively little attention has been paid to how ecological crises conditions new states of exception in the 20th century and early 21st centuries. 
More work calls to be done, in particular tracking how a state of exception may be culturally declared by ecological subjects who feel justified in mobilizing a set of, quote, emergency powers that, while obviously different from those politically executed by a sovereign state, nonetheless replicate its model of sovereignty through an exercise of strong subjectivity. Paradoxically, as I'll suggest in my reading of, quote, ice slides, unquote, such emergency powers are in this instance expressed in the cultural agency and even hyper-responsibility of the ecological expedition. It may be tempting to view the Cape Farewell expedition as responding to the call made by Benjamin, who proposes that when the state of emergency becomes the rule, the task then becomes, quote, to bring about a real state of emergency, unquote. However, I am concerned that the opposite may be the case, that under the shadow of climate change, there arise ecological citizens who dangerously act as sovereign in relation to a precarious planet that they territorially undertake to defend. And while territory, or space, matters in relation to the Arctic expedition that launches in the South, time will emerge as even more crucial to the ecological state of exception that it passionately pronounces. By contrast, Kapirangajuk visualizes global climate change in a manner that challenges both the model of sovereignty exercised by European nation-states and its mimicry in those forms of ecological subjectivity that mobilize emergency powers through extreme cultural missions. In materializing images of a very different time and duration of both exposure and observation, that is, in placing climate change within a longer history of Arctic incursions and exercises of sovereign power, as well as within a long practice of Inuit environmental attention and adaptability, Kunuk in Morrow's documentary refuses to excite the affect of ecological emergency. Or, to put it another way, in contrast with the Cape Farewell project, Kapirangajuk refuses to culturally declare a state of exception, even as the film presents moving images of the especially profound impact that climate change is having on the Inuit. By virtue of living in unspectacular, everyday exposure to the environmental and social effects of global warming on the North, the Inuit in the film offer a kind of ecological knowledge and responsibility that makes visible the incongruity of exceptional exercises of environmental witnessing by liberal-minded, well-intentioned Southerners. As such, the documentary can be viewed as contributing to Indigenous critiques of sovereignty as a Eurocentric concept and model of governance, one that is, quote, inappropriate as a political objective for Indigenous peoples, unquote, as Tayayaki Alfred puts it, by throwing into relief a model of ecological subjectivity that is equally, quote, inappropriate, unquote, for those whose conditions of life are most immediately affected by climate change. The different images of climate change materialized by these two collaborative projects is a biopolitical matter of considerable significance when one considers that the signs of melting ice in the Arctic are actively being read not only as a crisis justifying eco-cultural incursions into the North 
to witness its effects firsthand, but as an opportunity for Canada and other nation-states to capitalize upon warming Arctic waters. As melting ice formations physically open up new passages for global trade, countries like Canada are making increasingly aggressive assertions of sovereignty over the North. However, it's not only political claims to Arctic sovereignty that are excited by the effects of climate change in the North, but cultural acts of environmental witness that risk reanimating an imperial model of European expeditionizing, and what Lauren Berlant terms a quote-unquote melodrama of sovereign subjectivity, as global Southerners seek to actively respond with, quote, the heroic agency a crisis seems already to have called for, unquote. That these political, economic, and cultural dramas can function as supplementary or complicit territorializations is suggested by the Canadian government's recent revival of interest under the conservative leadership of Stephen Harper in Captain John Franklin's infamous and ill-fated Arctic expedition of 1845 in search of the Northwest Passage. The Harper government's investment in this fetishized fragment of its national history through the funding of archaeological searches for Franklin's lost ships, the HMS Erebus and the HMS Terror, coincides with the geopolitical interest in control over Arctic waters, bringing into view the long relationship between the spell of expedition and the extensions of sovereignty. In an essay on endemic obesity, Berlant works to interpret what she terms the quote-unquote mimetic resemblance between a Schmittian model of the state whose sovereignty is seen to lie in events of decision-making, that is, declaring a state of emergency, and a model of the subject who heroically exercises the decisional agency to improve their situation. For Berland, a quote-unquote crisis rhetoric that frames the epidemic of obesity in terms of social aid urgency and personal agency fails to grasp, even occludes from view, the endemic temporality or, quote, scene of slow death, end quote, within which it makes little sense to speak of sovereign subjects, events, and decisions. Quote-unquote, slow death is Berlant's term for a biopolitical time or, quote, zone of temporality, end quote, in which, quote, life-building and the attrition of human life are indistinguishable, end quote. While she specifically theorizes slow death in relation to the structural conditions and everyday wearing effects of endemic obesity, the concept is arguably relevant to the time of climate crisis. As will come into focus in what follows, the moving images of climate change given in quote-unquote ice slides and Kaparingajak are underpinned by a biopolitics that involves stark differences in the duration and intensity of a body's or population's exposure to the most punishing effects of global warming. These incommensurate exposure times are intimately bound up with questions of sovereign subjects and states that invoke ecological emergency as an exceptional occasion for melodramatic or militaristic action. The stakes, finally, are whether climate change will be understood within the long historical time frames and structural depredations of imperialist expansion and colonial capitalism, or whether it will be declared a crisis event justifying new exercises of sovereign power and new states of exception. The Climate Expedition and State of Ecological Exception 
In Flaubert's Modernity, environment was arguably perceived as existing in homeostatic equilibrium, allowing barometers to measure fluctuations or changes in pressure off a background of atmospheric stability. By contrast, toward the turn of the 21st century, the, quote, figure of the environment shifts, end quote, as Brian Musumi contends, quote, from the harmony of a natural balance to a churning seedbed of crisis in the perpetual making, end quote. Beyond the techniques of governmentality and biopower that Foucault traced to the management of populations and their milieus, Masumi proposes that environmentality is now the form of power coextensive with what he calls, quote, the figure of today's threat, namely a form of threat that is not only indiscriminate, coming anywhere as out of nowhere at any time, but that is also indiscriminable, end quote. Masumi describes, for instance, how the strike of Hurricane Katrina in 2005 and the U.S. occupation of Iraq bled together in the political speech of leaders like George Bush, effectively rendering the indiscriminate threats posed by the weather and by the U.S.-led war on terrorism indiscriminable. If the collapse of weather and war into a continuum of threat represents its indiscriminable character, Masumi sees climate change and swine flu as exemplary of threat's new form, given that the etiology of both are so complex as to be, quote-unquote, ultimately untraceable. In a similar vein, Timothy Morton theorizes global warming as a, quote-unquote, hyper-object. Hyper-objects are, quote, things that are so massively distributed in time and space, end quote, they can only be glimpsed or grasped in pieces. According to Morton, the world historical appearance of hyperobjects like global warming actually spells the end of the world as we know it by causing a profound quote-unquote quake in the epistemological and ontological footings of Western humanity. In this section, I look closely at one of Heather Aykroyd and Dan Harvey's ice slides in order to ask how it is possible to square the time of slow death and indiscriminable threat posed by climate change with an artwork that materializes climate change in the tiny time frames of a photographic slide, a slide that crystallizes it as a crisis event. Behind the time frames of this particular slide, there lies the even more exclusive time space of the Cape Farewell excursion itself, the melodramatic expedition on which the two British artists were invited to materialize moving images of climate change. Since the 1990s, Aykroyd and Harvey have been involved in numerous time-based green art projects that foreground urban political ecologies, for instance, quote, large-scale architectural interventions where they grow landmark buildings with seedling grass, unquote. While their series of photographic ice slides represents only a small portion of a rich and heterogeneous body of work, because they were produced over the duration of a two-week Cape Farewell expedition that the artist joined in 2005, the slides are implicated in its logic of crisis adventure. In the words of the founder of Cape Farewell, David Buckland, the project, quote, pioneers the cultural response to climate change, unquote, by inviting a small group of high-profile artists and scientists on ship expeditions to the, quote, high Arctic, unquote. 
The expeditions are designed to turn cultural producers into ecological witnesses who, through raw exposure to the polar landscapes most vulnerable to climate change, will return motivated to use art as a means of raising crisis consciousness. In 2008, the National Geography of Canada was stitched into Cape Farewell's cultural mission when it served as base camp for the project's second youth expedition to the Arctic. Several Canadian musicians, writers, and artists, including Feist and Jan Martel, have participated in its ongoing series of expeditions. Among the exhibits organized to feature the work of Cape Farewell artists was Unfold, on display in New York from September to December 2011, an exhibit accompanied by an artist statement that was again supplied by Buckland. Quote, We intend to communicate through artworks our understanding of the changing climate on a human scale so that our individual lives can have meaning in what is a global problem. Unquote. Both the authority of first-hand experience and an ecological Messinianism permeate Cape Farewell's disparate initiatives, as relayed by the description of the Unfold exhibit appearing on its website. Quote, Each artist witnessed firsthand the dramatic and fragile environmental tipping points of climate change. Their innovative, independent, and collective responses explore the physical, emotional, and political dimensions of our complex and changing world stressed by profligate human activity. End quote. As one might imagine, ice calls out as the material of choice for Cape Farewell artists who travel to the Arctic to be affected by climate change. Their time in the North is largely spent photographing, sculpting, sounding, painting, and otherwise artifactualizing ice. In the single photographic slide that I'll zoom in on by way of bringing the cultural project of Cape Farewell under closer scrutiny, Aykroyd and Harvey present ice as the iconic material signifier of climate crisis, reinforcing a popular sense that climate change is most legible in the thinning and melting of Arctic ice sheets and glaciers. Yet, in this case, ice isn't being photographed exactly. Instead, ice imprints itself, auto-crystallizing its angel wing patterns on the celluloid surface of the square film slide that the artists have merely exposed to the Arctic cold. The Arctic cold appears as an animate subject that self-materializes, leaving a trace of its powerful presence in the film coating of ice covering a slide that was held out as a passive surface of inscription. Only afterwards do the fingers of a human hand hold the ice slide up to be photographed, the act of representation secondary to the powerful visitation. The ice slide in this sense, enacts the submission of human image-making to nature's greater art of autophotography, dramatizing an ecological humility that could be read as the Janus face of the ecological Messinianism ignited by the expedition. While powerful, the visitation of ice imaged by Aykroyd and Harvey's slide is nonetheless deeply nostalgic. After all, Arctic cold and ice have been dramatically reduced, the small surface of the slide suggests, to a ghost trace of their former glory. These vanishing formations, the loss or quote-unquote slide of polar ice into warming ocean waters, is an ecological trope with tremendous effective traction, 
making this material image of climate change singularly moving. However, by testifying to and materializing climate change within the time-space of an at-once emotionally heightened and strenuous expedition, the biopolitical scene of slow death that Berlant associates with, quote, the temporalities of the endemic, end quote, is occluded. The ship expedition arguably allows its predominantly Euro-American crew to prolong a fantasy of serenity. In the shape of the bourgeois melodrama of personhood described by Berlant, here featuring the heroic witness to eco-crisis, at a moment in which few can still afford to performatively occupy old models of political, cultural, and human sovereignty. Although the ice slide, shown in figure 9.1, specifies its precise latitude and longitude, 78 degrees 30 north, 16 degrees 10 east, and thus appears to privilege geographic location in its framing of climate crisis, a biopolitics of time is even more at stake in this performance. How can ice slide be pressured to speak to the temporal biopolitics of the expedition in terms of uneven exposure times to climate change? Can the peculiarly ecological expression of sovereign subjectivity mobilized by Cape Farewell expeditions be said to constitute an exercise and state of temporal exception? Inspired by Berlant's rumination on scenes of slow death, my question concerns how sovereign power, which in this instance is exemplified by the power to declare a global state of ecological emergency, paradoxically comes to operate through cultural discourses and practices of ecological responsibility? How might sovereign decision-making power get effectively diffused or distributed through a culture of ecological emergency that calls for exceptional acts by enterprising individuals and communities of interest who share a powerful feeling that the time for securing human species survival is now, if not already past? A refrain that runs through cultural and scientific discourses of climate change that, quote, time is running out, end quote, operates with perhaps the greatest force in the genre of the chronological countdown. Consider, for example, political countdowns to the Copenhagen Climate Change Conference in 2009 that clocked its arrival down to the minute and second. Or think of scientific calculations of the time remaining before an ecological system reaches its irreversible, quote unquote, tipping points or before polar ice caps have disappeared. Such countdowns are one illustration of the unprecedented temporalizing of effect that comes to excite a global culture of ecological emergency. Buckland and the crews who are invited to participate in Cape Farewell expeditions act upon a sense of urgency that justifies exceptional excursions from the rule or norm which in the cultural expression of sovereign power that I'm exploring comes to equal the ordinariness of everyday life and the complacency that ordinary time seems to represent in view of the unprecedented threats facing humans as a species. The high Arctic stands for another time than the ordinary in this expanded sense and practice of exception. Yet what is elided by Cape Farewell's enterprising culture of urgency, or what I've also been calling its logic of crisis adventure, is that the Arctic is the space of the ordinary rather than the exception for those who live there, and that climate change is lived within much longer time frames for Arctic inhabitants than it is for members of the expedition. Also eclipsed is the paradox that climate change is not only the object of its concern, but one of the material conditions of possibility of the expedition. 
The melting of polar ice sheets not only opens Arctic waters to increased global traffic and excites nation-states like Canada to assert their political sovereignty over polar regions, it simultaneously allows the ships used on Cape Farewell expeditions to penetrate polar regions previously impassable due to ice. Is Ackroyd and Harvey's ice slide being asked to carry too heavy a burden of responsibility for the ecological state of exception enacted by Cape Farewell expeditions? As I've suggested, the slide seeks to focalize the indiscriminate threat of climate change by dramatizing polar ice as a vestigial presence. I've already noted the incongruity of trying to channel, quote, a generalized crisis environment, end quote, in Masumi's words, or a, quote, hyperobject, end quote, in Morton's terms, into the small square of a celluloid slide exposed to Arctic cold. However, in trying to reify indiscriminate threat, might the ice slide nonetheless produce some defamiliarizing effects? In his seminal essay, Thing Theory, Brown describes a character in an A.S. Byatt novel whose, quote, interruption of the habit of looking through windows as transparencies enables the protagonist to look at a window itself in its opacity, end quote. Something similar could be said of Ackroyd and Harvey's ice slide. Against the tendency to look through or past the material stuff of photographic film by seeing only the image, their slide brings the materiality of the celluloid frame back into view. It resists offering a filmic representation of climate crisis in favor of staging a physical encounter between celluloid and ice. In this reading, the ice slide could be said to obstruct a metaphysics of nature that would likewise take it as a given as the transparent container or timeless envelope of human history. Instead, ice obtrudes as a historically contingent and precarious nature that can no longer be taken for granted as a given. While it's possible to read ice slide as interrupting naturalized images of both culture and nature in this way, what nonetheless remains transparent is the biopolitical effect it has of crystallizing climate as a crisis event and of temporalizing effect. Yet, the messianic collection of an ice specimen at the moment of ice's traumatic disappearance, far from marking off the present as an historical exception, catches Ackroyd and Harvey in the act of inadvertently repeating a colonial practice of salvage ethnography that turns on tropes of vanishing natives and vanishing wildlife, and that justifies their collection and museumization. If climate change is being delineated as historically exceptional within the short time frame of the expedition, the tropes of salvage that permeate the Cape Farewell discourse suggest the opposite, that there is a long colonial history of turning vanishing culture and nature into a justification for preservationist interventions by a dominant Euro-American culture. A temporalizing of affect is also at work in the artist's decision to use old film slides on the expedition, an anachronistic medium associated with an earlier era of photographic capture. Supplied with this anachronistic surface on which to sculpt its dying breath, ice is nostalgized as a thing of the past, even as it makes its presence felt. A resemblance or analogy between film and ice is also evoked, a likeness between two material media. If film arrests life and preserves its image for posterity, ice 
likewise arrests or fixes biological life in a frozen state, and comes to appear as films double in nature, even films original. In other words, the ice slide can be read as nostalgic, not just for a world of ice before it vanishes into warming ocean waters, but more ambivalently for the loss of a mastery over biological life and death represented by the freezing powers of film and ice as twin life preservers. Again, the anachronistic use of an old film slide helps to bring the larger sentimental trappings of Cape Farewell expeditions into view. The expeditions revive what Renato Rosaldo calls, quote, imperialist nostalgia, unquote, in their chartering of ships that look distinctly 19th century, evoking earlier naturalist voyages of discovery such as Darwin's expedition on the HMS Beagle. Indeed, the ecological rationale for choosing both the Arctic and the Andes as destinations for Cape Farewell voyages, ostensibly because signs of climate change are most visible in both geographies, seems to thinly veil the neo-imperialist imagination that is at play. When Cape Farewell first included the Andes in its itinerary in 2009, it rhetorically posed the question, quote, why the Andes, unquote, on its website. The answer it supplies, quote, the ambition of Cape Farewell's first expedition to the Andes was to extend our expedition program and invite artists to witness the impact of climate change in another climate tipping point, the rainforests, unquote. Yet, a more critical retort to why the Andes might challenge the imperialist nostalgia that operates in and through the project's discourse of ecological emergency. In his analysis of imperialist nostalgia, Rosalda traces how agents of colonialism, quote, often display nostalgia for the colonized culture as it was traditionally, that is, when they first encountered it. The peculiarity of their yearning, of course, is that agents of colonialism long for the very forms of life they intentionally altered or destroyed, end quote. Beyond the yearning for other cultures that accompanies an intention to civilize them, Rosaldo notes that imperialist nostalgia encompasses an, quote, attitude of reverence toward the natural that developed at the same time that North Americans intensified the destruction of their human and natural environment, unquote. Cape Farewell utters this paradox by waxing nostalgic for an Arctic and an Andes untouched by anthropogenic climate change, even while it reproduces the anthropological rights of an imperial culture to turn other places into ecological object lessons. In view of the imperialist nostalgia excited by Cape Farewell expeditions, it is therefore crucial that its temporal assumptions be antagonized. To this end, I put critical pressure, finally, on the trope of exposure, which is pivotal to the powerful effect generated by Aykroyd and Harvey's ice slide. Of course, exposure signifies both the light conditions of photography and the vulnerability of a body that cannot protect itself against the elements potentially leading to death by weather. Photographic exposure slides into environmental exposure and vice versa in the tropic exchange staged by Aykroyd and Harvey. The celluloid frame is literally exposed to the Arctic cold, while the Arctic weather, conversely, is captured as an image of filmic overexposure. 
However, when this slide of signification is transposed to the larger politics of living under the shadow of climate change, it can be made to speak to biopower as a differential time of environmental exposure. Consider again the time window of the Cape Farewell Expedition, two weeks, and even more narrowly, the time of the film slide's exposure to Arctic cold. These temporalities carve out a time of exception from the ordinary endemic time of exposure occupied by those for whom the Arctic is not a temporary excursion. A profound disparity arises between the time of the Cape Farewell crew's exposure to climate crisis and the chronic exposure and attrition lived by Arctic inhabitants. Quote, the phrase slow death, end quote, writes Berlant, quote, refers to the physical wearing out of a population and the deterioration of people in that population that is very nearly a defining condition of their experience and historical existence, end quote. The gradual wearing effects that climate change has on bodies and environments cannot be captured or materialized within the urgent timeframes of Cape Farewell expeditions or within a search for tipping points. For this reason, Berlant differentiates between events and environments as temporal frameworks for tracking the destructive effects of global capitalism. Quote-unquote, slow death, she writes, Quote, prospers not in traumatic events as discrete time-framed phenomena like military encounters and genocides can appear to do, but in temporal environments whose qualities and contours in time and space are often identified with the presentness of ordinariness itself, that domain of living on, end quote. Berlant's work helps to show how the exceptional expedition, indeed the urgency that is normally understood to propel people to action and to politics, remains within a heroic genre of sovereign agency that is incongruous and inappropriate in relation to the unspectacular labor of life-building that many people pursue amidst structural forces of attrition. In relation to climate change, then, the concept of slow death can shift our attention to scenes in the North in which people are absorbed with quote-unquote living on in environments that are themselves absorbing the hardest impacts of climate change. This life-buffering is a mundane, biopolitical condition of the thinning good life that Southerners are largely content to accept. Inuit Prediction Techniques In their documentary, Kapirun Gajuk, Kunoke Moro can be read as refusing the genres that temporally frame climate change as a discrete event. Instead of crystallizing crisis, the film can be read as culturally working to materialize scenes of slow death. To complicate the genre of sovereign subjectivity and heroic agency, dramatized by Cape Farewell expeditions, is not to pathologize slow death and cast the Inuit as victims of global warming. Kapirangajuk generates a very different ensemble of affects in the mixed images it gives of both the large-scale impacts of climate change and the keen techniques of observation and adaptability that the Inuit are disseminating with the help of new technological media. Possibly the most striking difference between the ice slide examined above and Kapirangajuk consists in their producer's choice of cultural media. Ackroyd and Harvey use a photographic slide associated with a now outmoded age of image-making, a slide transported on board a ship expedition to the Arctic, where it was dramatically exposed to the elements. 
Kunuk and Moro's documentary, by contrast, is an Iglulik Usuma TV production that uses Inuit and Indigenous web-based interactive media to globally distribute the keen observations of Arctic inhabitants. If the former suggests that climate change becomes an occasion for a select crew to indulge in imperialist nostalgia, trying to avert the future by traveling through space back in time, the latter indicates that climate change is an opportunity for life-building as well as a pressing threat for the Inuit. By virtue of inhabiting the threat in the time of the everyday, Inuit people are able to contribute their situated knowledges to global discussions that are at risk of being monopolized by the expert testimonies of scientists or artists for whom the Arctic is a crisis event rather than a daily environment. And rather than depicting the Inuit as locked-in traditions that would appear, under the shadow of climate change, doomed, the documentary itself exemplifies a culture that is adapting its traditional knowledges to new media in order to relay Inuit quote-unquote thinking on the politics of climate change. Berlant's definition of quote-unquote thinking is instructive here, given that she describes it as a quote general opening for cultivating attentiveness and an ethics of mindfulness for a public intimate because they're experiencing together a shift in the atmosphere. Unquote. Several of the individuals who appear in Kapirungajuk address a global community that has in no uncertain terms been made quote-unquote intimate by the threat of climate change, initiating a public sphere in which a particular environmental vulnerability stops thinking, if only briefly, from sliding back into sovereign frames and habits of thought. Canuck and Moreau's co-production premiered in 2010 at the Imaginative Film Festival in Toronto. Through the long historical frames of elders and the quote-unquote prediction techniques of Inuk weathermen, the film offers very different time images and affects than those supporting the dominant genre of ecological emergency. English subtitles translate the words of the Inuktitut speakers who appear in the documentary, one of whom gives voice to the quote-unquote temporality of the endemic that contours the Inuit perspective. Quote, it's a reality for us. It's hot here every year now, unquote. A national Inuit leader appearing in the documentary, Mary Simon, similarly shifts the framework from extraordinary crisis time to ordinary time. Quote, Scientists talk about climate change with studies on pollution and toxins, whereas Inuit discuss the effects as they occur within our lives. Unquote. The documentary presents Inuit individuals talking in the domestic spaces of their living rooms or kitchens, interspersed with shots of their work and play outside. The at-homeness relayed by the unpretentious settings of Inuit knowledge could not be more at odds with the mobile space of exceptional knowledge contrived by Cape Farewell Expeditions. The film could itself be described as a collection of everyday environmental observations by Inuit from various communities. One motif, in fact one word, recurs throughout the numerous reflections the film relays on the effects of climate change in the North. Quote-unquote, noticing. One elder remarks, quote, 
Inuit notice how the sea is thinning the ice. Unquote. Inuit hunters, who observe the effects that climate change is having on Arctic animals, particularly seals, who have begun appearing with summer fur in the dead of winter, say, quote, This got my attention, or that was noticeable. Unquote. Through a long practice of environmental attention, the Inuit are able to take a measure of changes in snowdrifts and wind directions, in the thickness of ice at flow edges or fishing holes at different times of the year, in the quality of seal skins and caribou meat, in the number and behaviors of polar bears, in the comings and goings of multi-year ice. Moreover, the film corroborates independent observations by showing Inuit from disparate locations making uncannily similar observations about their Arctic environment and linking them together into a consistent and reliable body of knowledge. One particularly startling sign of climate change that the film corroborates in this fashion involves a shift that numerous elders and hunters have noticed in the setting sun. By virtue of a long history of environmental attention, they are able to compare the seasonal location of the setting sun and stars in the past with their very different location in the present, causing several Inuit to speculate that, quote, perhaps the Earth has tilted on its axis, unquote. Western science has interpreted this Inuit perception by noting that greenhouse gases in the atmosphere would indeed optically distort the view of the sun and other celestial bodies from polar locations, making it seem as though the Earth has tilted on its axis. But against the tendency to translate the Inuit's speculation that the Earth has tilted on its axis into the proper reason of Western science, isn't it equally possible to read the Western science of, quote, tipping points, unquote, as itself a genre of knowledge that might appear culturally fantastic, temporarily strange, from another epistemological point of view? Kaparangajak, in fact, offers its own correctives to Western climate sciences as it relays the Inuit's close observations of polar bear populations and activities. Against the popular imagination of climate crisis in the West, in which polar bears are mourned in the future anterior tents as animals that soon will have disappeared along with vanishing ice formations, numerous Inuit in the film insist that the polar bear population in the North is in fact increasing, as if resisting a salvage paradigm that frames both indigenous peoples and wildlife as doomed to disappear in the face of technological modernity, a paradigm at risk of being revived by discourses of climate crisis, as I suggested in my analysis of the Cape Farewell Project, several Inuit comment that polar bears are superb swimmers more than capable of surviving warming oceans and thinning ice sheets. This is not to say, however, that the Inuit don't observe climate change having an impact on polar bears. But ironically, they trace the source of these impacts to the methods of wildlife biologists who tag, radio collar, and quote-unquote manhandle bears in the cause of monitoring how they're affected by large-scale disruptions such as climate change. Quote, It's not climate change that's affecting polar bears, declares one hunter, but wildlife biologists, end quote. His words are corroborated by other Inuit 
who note that polar bears, quote, are constantly tampered with by Southerners, end quote, and that, quote, these issues of misbehaving or starving bears are caused by wildlife biologists, end quote. The ability of the Inuit to read environmental conditions has, however, been destabilized by the environment's unprecedented volatility. Quote, our ancestors were brilliant on the environment, end quote, one individual in the film states. Quote, in the fall, with no ice formed, they could predict and would say, the ice will be late, or the ice will be early, end quote. Joanna C. Karpik, an elder, affirms that the skills of the ancestors continue to be practiced. Quote, I also know these prediction techniques, end quote. However, Inuk weathermen are finding it harder and harder to predict the weather due, among many other things, to unusually erratic winds that cause tongue drifts in the snow to point in different directions. Quote, I can't forecast the weather anymore, end quote, says David Kaluk, an elder living in Resolute Bay. Prediction techniques are certainly not understood to be ammunition for sovereign subjects in possession of authoritative knowledges. Inuit knowledge of climate change is, instead, a mode of attention that the Inuit continue practicing while confronting forces of attrition that slowly wear on the environment of life. It is one means of, quote, inhabiting agency differently, end quote. Non-sovereign knowledges of climate change are, finally, what Kaparingajek broadcasts as a matter of global survival. Such non-sovereign knowledges as I've been approaching them through a comparison of two cultural interventions are knowledges belonging to subjects who live climate change not as a crisis event, but as an everyday wearing environment that has been continuously subject to a long history of colonial depredations. They are knowledges that reveal the sovereign subject, a figure of strong will, decision, and heroic agency, based on a European model of political sovereignty and the state's power to declare a state of exception, to be incommensurable with many people's struggles over conditions of life in the 21st century. One final feature of non-sovereign knowledges can be drawn out from the rich visual and oral text of Kaberengajak a distributed agency that involves the non-human world. Ice, wind, and animals are attributed a kind of agency that again counters modern liberal humanist traditions that reify agency in the willing autonomous subject. Such attributions problematize categorical assumptions about the human that undergird those traditions. For instance, Several Inuit in Kunuk and Moro's documentary talk about multi-year ice as a lively actor with a mind of its own, a being that exercises volition. As Inusik Nashalik, a Pangnertung man, relays his observations about multi-year ice, or icebergs, in the film, he speaks of non-human agency in an idiom that confounds the Enlightenment doxa that only humans properly exercise choice. Quote, Multi-year ice is not just ordinary ice. In the past, they would always appear. They behave like living beings. They came inside Cumberland Sound. Icebergs, they seem to have a mind of their own. If the ice chooses to, they can travel against the wind. But now, there seems to be less and less icebergs coming." End quote. Numerous contemporary scholars have sought to reanimate the dead, passive body of nature that Western culture has inherited from the Enlightenment. 
Thing theorists like Bill Brown, political theorists like Bruno Latour, new materialists like Jane Bennett, and anthropologists like Julie Cruikshank have been at the forefront of efforts to decenter the human as the privileged subject of agency. Cruikshank's work in Do Glaciers Listen? Local Knowledge, Colonial Encounters, and Social Imagination from 2005 is especially relevant, bringing into view indigenous understandings of distributed agency long before such a concept gained currency in the academy, and challenging Western epistemologies that have treated glaciers as natural rather than social, quote-unquote inert rather than active, and timeless rather than historical. Aykroyd and Harvey's work in dramatizing the visitation of ice could also be read as part of this post-Enlightenment movement to restore a vision of vital nature. However, the words of Anusik Nashalik can also temper the new surge of interest in non-human agency. Although Nashalik speaks of icebergs as social and volitional entities, he also understands that global warming is wearing down the very possibility of their historical comings and goings. Even as his words revive the lively powers of non-humans then, the non-sovereign knowledge voiced by Nashalik prompts awareness of the contexts of slow death within which vitalism, awakened by many recent formulations of non-human agency, may be as historically inappropriate as the dramas of sovereignty that I've been tracing. Through Isuma TV's interactive digital network, Kapirangajug can be accessed by Inuit living in remote communities, as well as by global publics who are receptive to Indigenous independent media. If local reception of Inuit observations is a priority for many in the North, Southerners also have much to learn from modes of attention that bring climate change into view as an uneven global environment, rather than as a spectacular event demanding exceptional responses from sovereign actors. The particularity of Inuit people's exposure to the most punishing effects of climate change may, in fact, have the potential to establish an alternate, quote-unquote, universal to the models of European sovereignty, state and self, that have been globally dominant for the past several centuries and that persist in liberal, well-meaning modes of reckoning with ecological crisis. The Cape Farewell Project is illustrative of such a well-intentioned attempt to culturally intervene in the crisis, and I've tried to throw its sovereign trappings into critical relief by comparing it with Canuck and Moreau's documentary. The sobering words of Mary Simon spoken in Kapirangajuk travel laterally through Inuit new media, contesting the quote-unquote southern habits of thinking that obstruct a global politics of climate change based in a non-sovereign vulnerability. Quote, Our whole world is changing. On the topic of the environment, southerners focus on borders, which prevents them from getting connected. When Inuit talk environment, we are one. End quote. Today, your readers were Mary Elizabeth Luca and Asna Adami. Dr. Mary Elizabeth Luca is an assistant professor at the University of Toronto and a digital media producer and director. Asna Adami is an artist, educator, and broadcaster based in Toronto. This podcast is brought to you by Just Powers and was produced by Mary Elizabeth Luca and Jesse Beyer, with sound recording by Luke Batois 
and location production by Jason McIsaac at Village Sound Studio in Halifax, Nova Scotia, situated on traditional Mi'kmaq territory, and sound editing and mixing by Catlin W. Cusick at Sublet Sound, temporarily located on the traditional territory of the Coast Salish people.